0: Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition. With real life stories from the front lines of nursing, this podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey
1: everybody, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. On today's podcast, we're gonna talk about what seems, to me, to be a very common cause for cardiac arrest in the hospital. However, it's actually not that common, I just have a skewed perspective from my role as a rapid response nurse. I get called to all of the unexpected code blues that happen, and those pulmonary emboli are pretty sneaky popping up out of nowhere and causing a quick decline in hemodynamic stability. Let's talk about the reason we keep strapping on the sequential compression devices and giving that life-saving subcutaneous heparin every 8 hours. We're talking about pulmonary embolisms. Dun dun dun. Do you know how many code blues that I go to where the patient was so very stable and out of nowhere they code? Even on the day of discharge sometimes. And What does everyone say after the code? must have been a PE because there's no other explanation for why they coded when they were doing so good. And that was unfortunately the case for this patient that we're going to talk about today. So I get called to the neuro floor and when I arrive, I see a woman in her sixties, diaphoretic and clenching her chest. The team had a fresh set of auto signs ready for me and honestly, they weren't that bad at first. Heart rate in the 120s, not that abnormal for a patient who's obviously in pain. Blood pressure, 116 over 60. Oxygen saturation, 94%, and they were placing her on a non-breather mask as I was walking in. Her respiratory rate was in the 30s, but again, not alarming for someone who's in distress complaining of chest pain. So at first glance, I'm thinking, this lady's having a heart attack. I mean, classic symptoms, right? Chest pain, shortness of breath, diaphoresis. So I call and get a stat EKG and then get the rest of the story from the primary nurse. She says, she's been doing so good. We were planning to discharge her tomorrow morning. Her daughter just got her all cleaned up and did her hair. She walked with physical therapy. When she got back to bed, just started complaining of chest pain. Like it just started a few minutes ago. She was fine before that. When she said the part about just walking with PT and then the symptoms started, and that's when I started questioning if this could be a pulmonary embolism and not a myocardial infarction. About that time, the EKG tech showed up and I helped her get all the stickers on her, which was a challenge because she was so very diaphoretic. they just wouldn't stay on her skin. And as we're doing the EKG, I got more of the story from the primary nurse. She said, she came in almost two weeks ago for a brain bleed. She takes Eliquis at home and it obviously was stopped once they found the bleed, she's scheduled to start it back again this afternoon. Again, the more I heard, the more I'm thinking PE. The EKG showed no ST segment changes, so I started an IV and I drew some blood run endoponins while Marissa, who you met in the last episode, was working on getting an ICU bed and packing her for her travel. We didn't know yet what was causing her symptoms, but with such an acute onset of symptoms and diaphoresis, we knew it was life-threatening. I mean, when I encounter a diaphoretic patient, I know that I'm either taking them to the ICU, the operating room, or the cath lab. Diaphoretic patients don't stay on med-surg. Diaphoresis is almost always bad news bears. So as I'm starting her IV, she goes from talking to us and saying how much her chest hurt to not saying anything at all. I recycled her blood pressure and now it's 80 over 40. Ah, oh, shoot. Chest pain, plus shortness of breath, plus tachycardia, plus hypotension, has now confirmed in my mind that we have a massive PE. The ICU had a bed waiting for us, but I was not about to roll down on the hallway with a blood pressure that low. So we mixed up a norepinephrine drip and started that and got our blood pressure to 110 systolic. I grabbed an epinephrine, epinephrine and put it in my pocket, and then we started booking it down the hall to the ICU. And when I say booking it, we were literally running down the hallway. I was at the foot of the bed watching the monitor running backwards as fast as my little legs would take me. En route, I'm thinking to myself, what is the ICU even going to do? Like, she can't have TPA. She just had her brain bleed. A thrombolytic might fix the PE, but it will most definitely cause bleeding to the brain, which will ultimately lead to death too. And intubation won't fix her PE. It might actually make things worse. Right as we approach the doors to the ICU, I see her start braiding down on the monitor. Heart rate of 80. 50. 30. I pulled out the epi in my pocket and got the nod from the ICU nurse practitioner to go ahead and give it. Mercy starts checking for a pulse and yells out, Code Blue! Get the crash cart! Right as the double doors open. She hops on her chest and starts doing compressions while the ICU team quickly jumps into action, grabbing the crash cart, setting studying it for intubation, pulling RSI drugs. We actually did achieve ROSC, or return of spontaneous circulation, and were able to do a bedside echo to confirm right heart strain and a mobile clot in the right ventricle. But the intensivist agreed that she was not a candidate for thrombolysis. We got her back long enough for her daughters to come say goodbye before she coded again. This was so heartbreaking. I mean, from the time I met her until she coded was less than 20 minutes and and 30 minutes prior, she was ambulating with physical therapy. I talked the case over with the intensivist after because I just wanted to make sure there wasn't something else that we could have done. He assured me that everything was managed perfectly. She had her brain bleed. So the prudent thing to do was to stop her blood thinners. She was on SCDs and was staying active with physical therapy. Once she was safely in the window to resume her blood thinners, she had already developed clots, likely in her legs, that traveled to her heart when she got up and moved to physical therapy, and then got lodged in the pulmonary vasculature. It was just a lose-lose situation. You get blood thinners, she bleeds. You take them away, she clots. I can usually hold her together, until I see the family grieving. That's what always gets me crying. What gave me some solace was thinking about how beautiful it was that her daughters were able to come and pamper her and do her hair and spend special time with her before she passed. We didn't have to call them at home and deliver bad news. They were there the whole time and they got to say goodbye. While I prefer you to tell stories on this podcast of life saved. This is the reality of working as a nurse. Sometimes even when we do things perfect, we still can't heal them all but we can provide dignity to our patients as they pass, and support the family as they process their loss. This is the heart of nursing, and this is what we're called to do too. Now let's shift gears a little bit and talk about what exactly is happening physiologically with the pulmonary embolism that causes the patient to decline so quickly and go from getting ready for discharge to cardiac arrest in a matter of minutes. A pulmonary embolism can originate anywhere and find its way to the lungs. Most often it starts as a blood clot in the legs and a piece or the whole darn thing dislodges from the vessel wall and travels up to the heart, often breaking into smaller pieces and then getting showered into the smaller blood vessels of the lungs. And sometimes a big old clot makes its way through to the lungs and includes a larger vessel, but contrary to popular belief, it's not usually the impaired ventilation and oxygenation that causes the patient to die, though that is a contributing factor. The biggest problem with pulmonary embolism is the impaired forward flow. We call this obstructive shock, meaning the blood clots are obstructing flow resulting in hemodynamic collapse. If you translate hemodynamic from Latin, you have hemo, which is blood, and dynamic or movement or flow of blood. Think about how the blood is supposed to move from the right side of the heart through to the lungs, pick up oxygen in the alveoli, and then once oxygenated, it should travel back to the left side of the heart to then be shot out of the aorta and circulated through the entire body. But if blood flow cannot easily get through the lungs, it will start to back up in the right side of the heart. Yes, blood clots in the lungs impair oxygenation, but more concerning, it acutely increases pulmonary venous resistance or pressure in the lungs. The right heart then has to work really hard to push the blood against that increased pressure, resulting in the right heart getting all stretched out and dilated. The stretched out right ventricle doesn't give the most effective contractions, which further worsens forward flow of blood and decreased contractility which leads to decreased cardiac output and dropping blood pressure. As this cycle continues, the right ventricle can become ischemic or lack adequate blood flow to perfuse itself. Eventually, the right side gets so big that it starts to bow into the left side, which decreases the left heart's ability to fill with blood and therefore decreases the amount of blood flow that can be squeezed out with each contraction. We call this stroke volume. Drop in stroke volume further decreases cardiac output and worsens blood pressure. As a new nurse, I remember thinking, why don't we just intubate them already? Their SpO2 is low. But think about it. What is intubation going to do? It's not going to fix the clots. It's not going to help the right ventricle. And it sure as heck isn't going to help the blood pressure. We all think that once we get a tube down the patient, we can all breathe a sigh of relief. Well, maybe for some emergencies, but not for pulmonary embolisms. Yes, these patients need high flow oxygen for support. But there are a few consequences to intubation that might worsen things for a patient with a massive PE. First, the drop in blood pressure that results from the rapid sequence intubation, or RSI drugs that we give prior to intubating, is no good for the right ventricle. It's already sucking at its job. Second, intubation with subsequent bagging or placement on the ventilator tends to increase pulmonary vascular pressure and further increase the resistance that the right heart has to work against to push blood through. So, if at all possible, choose heated high-flow nasal cannula if the non rebreather breather isn't cutting it. And if a patient is still dropping their SATs or their worker breathing is nearing respiratory collapse and you have to intubate, at least try to get the blood pressure up before administering the RSI drugs, which you know are going to drop their blood pressure, and avoid overbagging or high-pressure settings on the ventilator. Since intubation isn't the insta-fix for this crashing patient, let's review some things that might actually address the clot in their lungs and support the failing right ventricle. For massive PE, the only solution is to extract the clot or dissolve it with TPA. Not every facility has access to a team or a lab that can do a pulmonary thrombectomy, but almost every hospital has TPA. TPA is an acronym for tissue plasminogen activator. It's essentially Drano for your blood vessels. It's not merely an anticoagulant like heparin, which prevents coagulation. It is a thrombolytic, which literally breaks down the clot. All clots. So not all patients are candidates for this clot-busting drug. There are huge risks associated with administering it, namely bleeding into the brain. TPA for stroke is always weight-based but for a massive PE, you either give the entire bottle or about half the bottle, depending on which set of literature the ordering physician is basing their practice off of. And this patient, because of her recent brain bleed, we know she would just bleed again if we gave TPA for her PE. So the risk outweighed the benefits in this case. And that is the question every resuscitationist has to ask. Based on this patient's history and comorbidities, how risky is TPA? What are the chances this drug will kill them or leave them as a, in a vegetative state after it dissolves their PE? Other therapies recommended to support the right ventricle are inhaled pulmonary vasodilators like nitric oxide or even milrinone via ET tube. This will reduce the afterload for the right heart, making it easier to push the blood through the lungs. The other drug is epinephrine. Yes, it helps the blood pressure, but it also improves the strength of contraction or contractility of the heart. To effectively treat a massive PE, you have to address several issues. First, safely manage oxygenation and ventilation. Avoid intubation if at all possible, but obviously intubate if other oxygen delivery modalities have failed. Second, support the failing right ventricle with epinephrine and possibly inhaled pulmonary vasodilators and don't make it worse in the right heart by dumping in a ton of IV fluids. <clears throat> this could further worsen the dilation of the right ventricle. And third, get rid of the clot or clots. Heparin takes days or weeks to work. tPA starts breaking down that clot as soon as it reaches it. So before I summarize everything, I just have one more quick story that I want to remind us all of as far as like staying vigilant when caring for PE patients. So, I was a newest nurse in the ED. I was caring for the sweetest little old lady who came in for shortness of breath. Turns out, she's got a PE, but she was hemodynamically stable and oxygenating well with minimal oxygen support. So we placed her on a heparin drip and admitted her to the ICU for close observation. I called her to the ICU and it sounded like this. Hi ICU nurse, this is Sarah from the ER. I've got the best patient for you. Um, she's usually a walkie talkie, but she has a PE. So I've got her in a heparin drip, bottle are stable. She's on two liters of oxygen. That's been good. Like mid nineties, um, no vasopressors, no other devices, super stable patient. This is probably going to be the easiest ICU patient you've ever had. She's like, okay, sounds good. Bring her up. So I'm thinking, this is going to be easy to transport. Like this patient has been completely stable with me. Yeah, she's got a PE, but bottle signs look good. She's pink. She's talking, looks great. So I didn't take any emergency equipment with me, only the nurse tech to help push the bed and the monitor. This particular elevator that we had to take always makes a big bump when rolling over the doorway. So I always warned the patient, big bump here as we entered. Just as we rolled over the bump and parked in the elevator, I pressed the button for the ICU floor and looked back at her and she says, I can't breathe and started turning dusky, like before my eyes. I jacked up her oxygen flow in the nasal cannula and her eyes rolled back and she became unresponsive. I checked for a pulse and she didn't have one. So I hopped in the bed with her and started compressions. The nurse tech said, what do you want me to do? I said, push the bed as fast as you can as soon as those doors open up. As I'm saying this story now, I'm realizing how eerily similar it is to the story with me and Marissa, an RPE patient. Anyway, so as we enter the ICU, I yell, Code Blue, coming in hot! She was talking to me and coded as soon as we got on the elevator. The nurse I get report to says to me, Is this the same patient that you said would be the easiest ICU patient ever? I said, Yes, yes, this is the one. I, I take it back, I take it back. I'm assuming the boom-bump we did as we entered the elevator jarred her clot enough that it moved it and got it lodged somewhere more dangerous, and that is why she went from being stable to coding. Although it was only 20 seconds that I was doing CPR without a bag valve mask, I was kicking myself for days for not bringing a bag valve mask to transport. And since that day, I never underestimate the stability of a PE patient, and I always bring a bag valve mask with me on every transport Just in case. So, in summary, pulmonary embolisms are life threatening. They can be mild or low risk PEs, submassive or massive. The risk factors for PE are the same as that of a DVT vascular disease, immobility, hypercoagulability. When a patient develops a PE, the symptoms include chest pain, shortness of breath, low oxygen saturation, although not always or even usually, but sometimes, Uh, hypotension, initially tachycardia, but ultimately bradycardia, and impending sense of doom. Like if a patient tells you they're going to die, just believe them and be prepared for the worst. You can diagnose PE with a CAT scan, and there are other indicators like elevated troponin, D-dimer, BNP, ST segment elevation, etc. But for a crashing patient, there isn't always time for a CAT scan. So the best thing to do often is a quick bedside ultrasound, which can confirm right heart strain, which when paired with increased risk for PE and shortness of breath would lead us to assume PE. Sometimes you can even see clot whipping around on the right side of the heart. They call that clot in transit. So if we're thinking PE... And there are not any contraindications like recent bleeding or recent surgery or risk for bleeding from other blood thinners or bleeding disorders, we will consider TPA for the patient. While we're waiting on all the diagnostic stuff to happen, you have to start managing the symptoms. So think about what's actually happening physiologically and how to combat it. All right, so there's clot or clots in the lungs, inhibiting the flow of blood to the alveoli, impairing gas exchange. So start by increasing the flow of oxygen. The next part of the spiral of death is that the right heart starts to dilate from working so hard to push against increased pulmonary pressures. Flow through the heart and lungs slows and starts to back up. Low flow leads to low blood pressure. So initiate epinephrine or whatever vasopressor you can get your hands on first to increase blood pressure and improve cardiac output. Avoid giving a lot of volume unless you are sure you have hypovolemia and a PE, because fluids could worsen things for the right ventricle. Know that a drop in blood pressure could tip the patient into hemodynamic collapse. So avoid intubation, but if you have to, get the blood pressure up before you give any sedation, and be prepared to administer inhaled pulmonary vasodilator to the ET tube once established to help out that right ventricle. If the clot's not addressed, flow will continue to back up, and ultimately, the right ventricle will get so big, it will bow into the left ventricle and decrease its filling and jot the blood pressure even more, further worsening cardiac output. You're going to have to deal with that clot, either by removing it mechanically or dissolving it with TPA. That's the only way to stop the spiral of death. In my book, chest pain and shortness of breath on an immobile patient is a PE until proven otherwise. So err on the side of caution and don't downplay the symptoms. PE patients crash fast. So don't waste your time or brain space trying to figure out what went wrong. Probably nothing you did. PEs just happen. So activate your rapid response team because it's going to be all hands on deck to turn this thing around and stop the PE spiral of death. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition, and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient.
0: You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsernpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RN Podcast Facebook page as well as the podcast website, rapidresponsern.com.